It's appropriate on this Lord's Day morning where we celebrate and remember the family of God and we consider the Lord Jesus Christ's own definition of what it means to be the family of God that we also introduce new members here in our midst at Cornerstone. You'll find in your bulletin this morning on pages 13 and 14 a two-page spread of new members uh, here at Cornerstone who are scattered across our three services uh, this morning. We do have the privilege of having a handful um, of new members here in this service uh, among us this morning. I'm actually going to call, just to embarrass them uh, this morning, those who are uh, in our midst, Mr. Alex Short. Alex, if you'll just stand briefly right back there, just stand right there. Alex, welcome. And we have Rebecca and Margaret, both of you here this morning. Welcome. And I think Maxwell is back here in the corner serving us. Thank you, Max, for serving us. Um, and you'll see many other new members on pages 13 and 14 who have joined our body. They're also giving you just a little bit of information about them so that you can uh, get to know them. I want to encourage you to look for uh, their faces as you move throughout this morning between uh, Sunday school classes and services and uh, greeting them and welcoming them to Cornerstone. Each of these members have made their way through the Exploring Cornerstone class and have committed uh, and made vows before the Lord and to the session and before you as a local body of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to this local church. And I want to take just a minute to rehearse those vows with you, both as a reminder of what it is we've committed to as members here at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. These are our five questions of church membership. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope, save in His sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? And do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? If you take in those five questions of church membership, they can be summarized very simply by the acknowledgement of sin, that we are sinners in the sight of God, that we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, that we're committed to endeavor to become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and follow as His disciples, to submit ourselves to the governance and the discipline of this body and to support this body in its worship and its work. Those five questions define membership here at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church and any church that is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. And it's important from time to time that we renew our vows, isn't it? That we remember what it means to be a member in a local body because the Lord Jesus Christ tells us and also through the lips of the Apostle Paul that each one of us are members of a body in the way that my hand is attached to my arm and my arm to my shoulder and so forth. We are connected to one another, that the lifeblood of each other actually pulsates through the lives of each of the members. And we together are connected to the head that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important when you hear that word member that you don't think Costco or country club. 
but you think a part of the body that's attached to another part of the body. In other words, that our very life depends on us being connected to one another and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the powerful image that Paul is giving us in 1 Corinthians 12 and in other places in the Scripture to describe the importance of the family of God and the body of Christ. And so as we um, celebrate and, and recognize these members joining into our body, let's also renew our commitment as those of who are members of Cornerstone and maybe have been from the very beginning. Let's renew our commitment in being the body of Christ that God has called us to, even as we turn to His Word that focuses upon that very theme. Let's do that from Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3, picking up our reading in verse 31 and continuing to verse 35. And when His mother, that is Jesus' mother, and His brothers came... And standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mothers, my mother and my brothers? And looking about as those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we now take a few minutes in your word and consider how it is that you speak to us about what it means to be the church, the family of God. We pray that you would tune our hearts to hear this word, and we would receive it as your holy word intended for the good and the upbuilding of your church, and that we would at the very center of this instruction and the challenge of these words, we would see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and his fulfillment in making us the family of God. Would you come now and meet with us in this way? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in our study of the Gospel of Mark, you might be aware of the fact or might remember the fact that we are in the midst of a series of conflict stories or what have sometimes referred to by scholars as opposition stories to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been doing tremendous miracles going all around Galilee and Capernaum and people are coming from literally the north, south, east and west to have miracles performed because of diseases or demon possession or whatever challenge or struggle they may be facing. But Jesus, as his popularity grows, there's side by side with his popularity is the intensity of opposition against him, the religious leaders from one story after another, have been offended at things that Jesus has said, claims that he's made concerning himself being Lord of the Sabbath, or taking to himself the divine title of Daniel, the Son of Man, or doing actions like healing a man on the Sabbath day, doing those things which were considered out of accord with the tradition of the religious leaders at the time. We've seen in each of those stories that we've looked at going back to Mark chapter 2 and now all the way through Mark chapter 3 
that this opposition is heightening even as his popularity continues to grow. What we haven't seen in quite the amount of technicolor that we have seen with the opposition of the religious leaders is the opposition at this point in his ministry and life of his family. But if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to actually open them to Mark chapter 3 because I want to take you back to what I believe is the context of this passage and then look at four uh, points with you this morning from this text. The context of this passage is actually not the immediate preceding story. The story we looked at last week, which uh, was the debate and discussion that Jesus had with the religious leaders over uh, who his, his power and strength is really coming from. What's the source of his power and strength? They were saying he had a demon. And he was claiming, how can uh, Satan's kingdom stand if Satan is casting out Satan? Because that's actually the powers that Jesus was delivering. And we saw that story take place. But if you look back just previous to that story, to verses 20 and 21, we catch a glimpse of where Jesus' family is in relationship to him and his ministry at this point. We're told in verse 20, Then he, that's Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. The judgment of his family at this point is that Jesus is insane. He is struggling with mental and emotional illness. The nice men in the white coats need to come and take him away. That's the impression that we get from the text there in verse 21, is that Jesus, by his family's estimation, is not well mentally. And they are so concerned about him, we might even say so embarrassed by him from a personal standpoint, that they want to go out and seize him. That is literally take control of him. They want to impede that which he is doing. That's where his family is at this point in time. Now... We have the story of the, this Jesus engaging with the religious leaders. And now it's like we come back to the family that was going out to seize him. We now come back and we pick up the thread of verse 21 and they show up. They finally found him, the Jesus that they have come to seize. And as they come to seize him, they find that they can't seize him. There's too many people around him. He's hemmed in in this house. And so they send in word after him in order to draw him out, in order to be able to take him home. It's in the context of his family's concern for Jesus, from his mental stability, maybe even from their own personal uh, embarrassment by the things that he's saying and doing, that this passage actually comes into light. We begin to see why Jesus responds so strongly to his family. What we might clearly understand and see, at least in our first reading, as a shocking, even offensive statement about who his real family is. Now, as we think about it in that context, there's four things I really want us to learn from this passage today. Really lessons to glean from what Jesus is teaching us in these five verses. And the first lesson I want us to learn today is this. Closeness to Jesus Christ doesn't make you a follower of Jesus Christ. Closeness to Jesus Christ doesn't make you a follower of Jesus Christ. Of the Lord Jesus 
Christ. There was no one closer, physically speaking, blood relations speaking, than Mary, who's here in the scene that's before us. Jesus' literal DNA, and we'll go too, down, too far down this path, his literal DNA is Mary's DNA running in and through him. Now, we know this was a miraculous pregnancy. He doesn't have the chromosomes of his father and his bloodline of his father in a physical sense running through him. This is an immaculate, a, a miracle conception that has happened, but what he does have is the actual DNA and bloodline of Mary running and coursing through his body. He would have shared that with his half-brothers, and that's what they would have been, biologically speaking. His half-brothers, those brothers that were born from the union of Joseph and Mary. No one is closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. No one has sat around the table as often as these with the Lord Jesus Christ, worked alongside him as the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet closeness to Jesus does not make them followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really important to see. In fact, if you can to go back to the scene for a second and just put yourself there, imagine how awkward this moment must be. Here is, here is Mary... Gave birth to Jesus, nursed Jesus, has loved Jesus his whole life. There's a brothers there concerned for his mental stability and health, wanting to take him home. And there he is gathered with his disciples inside someone's home. And they're waiting outside. They can't get in on the inside. That's actually a clue. They're not insiders. They're outsiders. And in order to get to Jesus, who do they have to go through? They have to go through these disciples, these who are listening these who are following, these who have committed their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, they have to send a message through those who are closer to Jesus, true followers of Jesus than even them, and to say, hey, will you just let Jesus know that his mom's out here? Okay, his mom's out here and really needs to hear from him, really needs to see him. I'm sure that'll shut down the whole enterprise of what's happening on the inside. What's more important than mom coming and saying she needs to speak with you immediately? Now imagine how awkward it is when they pass this message back out to Mary and the brothers. So Mary, we, we, took, we took your message uh, to Jesus. And listen, listen, I know he loves you. He loves you very deeply. Um, uh, brothers, listen, you guys are the best. I mean, you have, you've always been beside Jesus the whole time. Um, what, he, what he said, I don't think reflects the entirety of how he, he feels in this moment. But what he said is that he is presently taken up with a different family. And it is only those who do the will of God that are his family. I'm really sorry to have to deliver. I, I'm just sorry. That's all. That's what he said. And I just, I need to tell. No, he's not coming. No, he's going to stay inside and continue to meet with, I guess what he would understand to be his family. The people most committed to him and of whom he is committed to. Do you feel the offense? You feel the shocking nature of that? Now, this is a shocking and offensive thing no matter where it is you come from, but can you imagine in a first century Hebrew culture that is based in family? It's rooted in lineage. I mean, these people memorize their genealogies. 
They were deeply tied by bloodlines. It's, they, they were, well, they were Mississippians, basically. And most of you know I grew up in Mississippi, and, and when two Mississippi people meet, when, when they meet, uh, they, they, they don't know each other, and they almost all know each other. But if they don't know each other, and they introduce themselves, one of the first questions they ask is, who are your parents? Where are you from? And then for the next 30 minutes, they make personal connections with one another to find out at the end they're related to one another, long-lost cousins, and they'll probably be at Thanksgiving you know, together this year as they've been reunited. I mean, that's what it's like to grow up in, in Mississippi. That's very similar to a kind of Hebrew culture, a deeply family-lineaged and genealogically tied culture. In fact, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees over their misunderstanding of salvation, they say, no, Jesus, we think you misunderstand. Abraham is our father. That's all you need to know, friends. That's how they understood it. Meaning, his blood flows through us. The promises of God came to him, and we come from the loins of Abraham. Case closed. Where do you come from, Jesus? Oh, yeah, we're not sure who your father is. That's John chapter 8. You would think of anyone who might have an inroad into salvation through physical connection with Jesus, who would it be? Mary. The closest possible physical connection, Lord Jesus Christ. And the text is very clear here. Closeness to Jesus doesn't make a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is really important, I think, for us Presbyterian types just by way of application. God is pleased throughout the generations from Old Testament to New Testament to extend his promises from parents to children. And we trust and believe and rejoice in the glory of covenant promises that are good to a thousand generations, we're told, through Jeremiah 31. That God is pleased to make available the reality of grace and salvation, the same one that we've embraced to the children of our next generation. But what sometimes happens within the context of a Presbyterian circle or a circle with a strong understanding of covenant promises and lineage from one generation to another is we can become quite presumptive about salvation from one generation to the next. We need to be very careful about that. Just because someone is born within a Christian family, just because someone is connected to a local church, just because someone has a grandfather who was ordained as an elder or deacon or a pastor, doesn't mean anything when it comes to the purposes of following the Lord Jesus Christ. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, it's not going to be the credentials of your family or lineage that gets you in. It's going to be saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We are grateful for his promises. We are indebted in thankfulness for that lineage. But we individually must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Now, praise be to God. We see Mary and uh, James, Jesus' own brother, uh, come into knowledge about who Jesus is over the course of their lives. But at this point, what we're seeing in the text is closeness to Jesus. is not the same thing as followership. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's number one. I want you, here's number two. The family of God takes priority over the immediate family. Did you catch this in the text? 
The family of God takes priority over the immediate family. Here is the immediate family showing up at the door. The family of God is inside that house. The immediate family has a demand, has an expectation. Jesus, your mom's here. Your brothers are here. They're saying it's time for you to go. It's time for you to come outside. You know, supper's on. Food's going to get cold. It's time to come home. And Jesus doesn't oblige. He doesn't oblige. He doesn't allow the expectation and the demands of his earthly family to take precedent over the mission of his father and his commitment to the family of God. Isn't that fascinating? Who are my mother and my brothers, he says. And looking around at them all, literally the word is, searchingly he looks at them. He looks at them in a deep way, those who are here, as if they are to understand. You are my mother and my brothers. Now, I think it's appropriate at this point to, to, um, to just affirm the fact that Jesus is not here, in case you're worried about this, uh, denigrating or disparaging uh, family relations. He, uh, over and over through the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, we see that the family is spoken of in good and foundational and right biblical terms. Uh, Jesus speaks of the goodness of marriage, for instance, in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, He upholds the principle of parental authority over children in the fifth commandment in Mark chapter 7. We'll get to that passage in the new year. In in Mark chapter 10, he welcomes the children to come to him. And he speaks that the kingdom of God is given to such as these. We see Jesus' own care for his mom while he's dying on the cross. He looks out at her as he's dying on the cross and he says, Behold, woman, your son, as he speaks to John, the disciple who will take care of her. Jesus asserts the good and important family relationships that each of us have. But the priority of the immediate family is subservient to the family of God. And here's why. The will of God, which is the centerpiece of this text... The will of God is inestimably more valuable than the will of any family or any family member. What do I mean by that? The will of God is of inestimably more value, greater than the will of any family or of any family member. Well, I want to pause and and make the, the argument for a second, if I may. That behind every relationship, every relationship we're ever in, there's a will behind it. Or a will that's involved in it. And what I mean by that is there's a demand. There's an expectation. There there is a kind of work that must be done in that relationship. If you have a friendship with someone, there are going to be expectations. Most of them unsaid, but we all kind of know them. Like... You should be kind. You should talk to them occasionally. If they're in need, you should help them. Basic demands and expectations that come with any relationship. The more central the relationship, the more heightening the demands. Like marriage or or like children are instituted and structured in a way with an elevating or heightening demand that's given. 
Over the course of our lives, every single one of our relationship comes with a will or a demand, a call to obedience, some level of expectation. This is what makes parenting difficult, right? Because as a, as a child is born, it is the parent's will and authority that the child is under and is completely uh, captured by, completely under, in those younger years, the will of a father and, and a mother. But as that child grows, what happens? Well, that, that will begins to, to develop. And, and as that will develops, there are other wills uh, in their lives that influence them, like friends. And you know what happens when friends are influencing? All of a sudden, the thoughts and desires of friends become more important. Their will, what they would will for you to do, become more important to you than what your parents would will uh, for you to do, right? That becomes more uh, more attractive, and that's a part of the growing up uh, process. In fact, if we could put it this way, sometimes we refer to rebellion, right? When a child is a teenager, and we, they may... You know, pushing off things that their parents uh, say are good and right and true or the church says is good and right and true. And we would say they are just asserting their will. Well, here's what's quite interesting. Well, there's true. They're coming into their own will, so to speak. But what is it the things that they want to do? What their friends want to do. What, what other people want them to do. What they think is cool. What they see other people doing that's cool. What does that actually tell you? It tells you that with every will and desire and actually every rebellion, it's fairly, fairly communal. Is that we're influenced, what's happening is we're influenced by different relationships. And the will of those relationships are having a greater demand on us or greater authority to us, a greater influence on us than other wills used to be. This is why getting married can be difficult. Difficult for mom and dad who you left. Because now all of a sudden, you're a family unit and... And the will of this marriage is, has been broken off from the authority of the parental structure. And mom and dad can look at that marriage and can kind of go, I wish they would do it differently. And then suddenly at Thanksgiving dinner, they, they passive-aggressively communicate in a variety of ways to tell you why you're doing things wrong. And it's an attempt to assert a will, an expectation, an obedience for how you ought to live. And at some point, some line often has to get drawn where you kind of go, I know you disagree, but we're going to do it anyway. Kind of a thing, right? Because our wills are aligned. This is the nature of the way all relationships work. I don't think you can see that unless that's unpacked a little bit in the text. And so part of what Jesus is actually saying is family relationships or relationships, um, generally speaking, are actually connected to will. To, to an expectation or a demand. Um, and it means an aspiration, even, even a direction for life. So when the president of Vanderbilt <laughs> says to every incoming you know, freshman, welcome to the family of Vanderbilt University, right? They say something like that. I don't think he means we're all genetically related. What he likely means, if we get past the marketing cliche for a second, what he likely means is, we're all after the same things here. We're pursuing the same things together. You understand, as I understand, this is the best university on the face of the world. And that's why you're here to get an incredible education. And we're here to provide you with that incredible education. We're, our wills are aligned. 
Our wills are coming together. Our directedness and definitive decisions are coming together, which makes us unified. It makes us a family. That's why we speak of it in that way. Now, this is important because what's happening in this text is a battle of wills. It's a battle of wills, which is why Jesus so clearly draws a line in the sand. He is not being rude here. He is understanding that the very mission of God is on the line. And his family expectations have become an obstacle to the accomplishing of making the family of God. That's what's happening in this text. What do I mean by that? Well, when it says here that Jesus, they have come seeking Jesus, go back to verse 21 in Mark chapter 3. And what we find is this seeking is not some gentle check-in. You know, this is, this is not some, they're seeking Jesus. They're, we're just checking on you. We hadn't seen you in a while. We missed you for dinner last night. Your mom just needs a hug. Just checking in on you. When you, when you think you're going to be home. That, that's, not, that's, not this, that's not this moment. This moment is we want to seize him. This is we're going to call him out and the brothers are there and we're going to get this thing done. We're going to take him back and we're going to put him behind closed doors. This is, this is a battle of the wills where the family has expectations for the Lord Jesus Christ that are not in line with the expectations of his father's will for him. Now, you, you know that they're genuinely concerned for the Lord Jesus. And they're probably, right, I said, probably not so little embarrassed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, okay, ladies here, put yourself in, in Mary's Torah Bible study for a second, right? She's gathering with the ladies from the temple in the home. They're opening up Deuteronomy 6. They're talking about family and gathering. Um, Mary, we heard that Jesus the other day... When he was out, you know, healing the world, um, we heard that he claimed to be the Son of Man. What do you, what do you think about that? Oh, Mary, I, I heard the Sanhedrin came down uh, from Jerusalem. They're, they're kind of agitated with how Jesus is doing things. Have y'all thought about talking to him and, and maybe uh, reining him in a little bit? You have, to, you have to get in the context of this passage. These are the dialogues. That are happening. He's amazing. He's also a little concerning. At the same time. As Jesus is coming, is, is here in this context, there's rumors flying. Mary and the brothers are here to remove him from his public eye. And Jesus refuses to let the earthly family's expectations and demands take precedent over the call of his heavenly father and the mission of making the family of God. This is why we get such severe, and this is what it sounds like, right? Severe passages like um, Mark chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, when you hear it in those, in those, those shivering sort of words that we wish Jesus would unpack with like 10 
<laughs> you know, caveats, when, when we wish he would do that with those words, what's he saying? You can't serve God and man. That's what he's saying. You can't do it. It's impossible. And I don't care if it's your mom or your next door neighbor or the ruler of the nation you live in. I don't care who it is. You can't serve God and man. It's impossible. Jesus will not take second place behind anyone. That's the point of this text. And this moment is a moment where, almost like when Peter, if you'll remember when Peter declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We'll see that in Mark chapter 8. And he said to Peter, then I, you're right, Simon Barjona, this is not a flesh and blood that's revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be rejected by the scribes. And Peter goes, nuh-uh. <laughs> no, you're not. God forbid you're going to do that. And then what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. We might say that's not his friendliest words ever to Peter. And yet, what did he interpret Peter's resistance to his mission as? An obstacle for achieving the salvation of man. That's exactly this moment with his family. They're going to take him away from his father's mission. That's their goal. Now, I again, because I am preaching this passage and I get the privilege to do so today, I will give a caveat at this particular moment in the text. Do we really... I have to say that our immediate families are at odds with our spiritual families at every point and turn? Well, of course not. Of course not. Many of us in this room actually have the privilege of our immediate families being a part of the spiritual family of God. And when that begins to happen, real family relationships begin to reveal themselves. But but let me tell you, one of the points he's pushing home for us is, you will find very regularly that within the context of families, there is often such demands that are placed within those relationships that pull you away from what you know the Lord is actually calling you to, rather than toward it. Rather than toward it. I believe this is actually why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians will say, even though... Marriage is a wonderful thing of which the Bible commends from cover to cover. He says, I'm kind of grateful that I'm not. Because it allows me the unhindered devotion to the call which the Lord has placed upon my life as an apostle. He realizes there's demands that are not on him. Because he is a single man serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He's recognizing just the reality of the matter. And so here's part of the principle that's being made here. What is a healthy then immediate family? Well, a healthy immediate family is one that allows the will of God to rule and run through their immediate family. A healthy immediate family is one that allows God's family, God's priorities, His will to rule and run through their immediate family. Now for that to happen, here's what you have to do. You actually have to love God more than your family. Now, I'm saying this on Thanksgiving month. And it's as true as the day is long when you look at the Scripture. It's as true as the day is long. You've, the best thing that you can do, fathers, mothers in here, best thing you can do for your children, love God more than your children. 
And love your children with the love that you have for God. Love them with the love that you have for God. That's the best thing that you can do for your children. You're, you're caring for them well. You're caring for them well. There's lots of applications that we could talk about here, but one of the, one of the questions I'd like to pose, and I'll point you to the, taking the message home for actually this week as you consider some of the things that we're looking at. Evaluate your family. How do you make decisions? What are the patterns and priorities for how your family operates, communicates, what's giving its time and its resources to? What matters most to your family, individually and corporately together in your immediate family? Is it easily discernible that the will of God is driving your family? Is it easily discernible? Or could it be that there are large swaths of the time and the resources that your family gives in life that has much more to do with the will of man than it does with the will of God. Because our families do have a tendency to have such power and strength to actually draw us away, in many cases, from the Lord. I, I, I was saying this last night to my own family, and it just occurred to me as I was talking about this and getting prepared for this service, but isn't the first sin, the original sin in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it a picture of this? There is Eve being tempted, wooed to the evil one, away from the mission and the will of the Father. And there is Adam, not thinking about the will of God, just standing there like a loaf. And then she eats of the tree, and what does she do? She gives to him, and he eats as well. You could argue that what actually led us down the path of original sin happened within a nuclear family where the expectations of joining family were stronger than following the will of God. I can't tell you the amount of people I've spoken to who are on the mission field who get so much grief from their family because they're not nearby, because they've made certain life choices, because of the call of God and the will of God. They don't, they're, not, they're not as successful as their family had hoped they would be. They're not as nearby as their family had hoped them to be. And you should think, as those who are committed to the family of God, we would rejoice. Yes, we're sad that they're not there. Yes, it breaks our heart, humanly speaking. But we rejoice that we're going to be with them for eternity. And they are following the will of God. And that's way more important to us than them being home for Thanksgiving. That's Jesus' point. You see how close that comes to home. We're learning in this passage, secondly, that there is a priority to the family of God over that of our immediate families. Thirdly, Jesus Christ's doing of the will of God is what makes us the family of God. Now, I have to do this quickly. I hope there's been something of an uneasiness in your heart through this message so far. It has been for me. I already feel it. It's a little sharp. It's a little intense. It's hugely convicting, hugely convicting to read and reflect on these truths together. Which is why this third point is so important, that Jesus has come to do the will of the Father for the making of the family of God. You see, you should be saying to yourself, okay, if I'm going to be family of God, I guess I've got to do the will of God. Let's go, let's go do the will of God. I'm going to go do the will of God. Well, what if you don't do the will of God? Oh, by the way, you haven't done the will of God. And in, in case you're like, well, I'm not sure about that. We've already confessed it in this service. 
Like we've already taken time to corporately acknowledge the fact that we have not collectively done the will of God together. Uh Uh-oh. Does that mean that we are not a part of the family of God? Is that what that means? Well, it would mean that if the entirety of the weight of doing the will of God was being placed on our shoulders. But why is it so important that Jesus rejects his family at this point? In order to say yes to the mission of his heavenly father. It's so that you who fail in doing the will of God. Can find in him the only one who ever does the will of God. And he did it for you. He did it for you. He is the only one who does the will of God. We knew this from the very beginning. Do you remember his earliest days? His earliest of days, which are told to you in, in Luke chapter 2, you would think, okay, Mary, you've been hearing this for many years by this point. You know, they go to Jerusalem, feast of Passover. They lose Jesus. <laughs> you know, they travel away, have to come back three days, look for him. They find him in the temple. And he says to them, yeah, why, why again? Were you, why, were you, why were you looking for me? I mean, you knew, right, that I would be about my father's mission. Do you know what this passage is? It's a grown-up that passage. It's the same passage. It's actually the same passage. They've lost Jesus. They think he's lost his mind. What has he done? Mary actually comes there in Luke chapter 2, comes to him and says, Why would you do this to us? We have been looking everywhere, searching for you. Why are you doing that? It is my food to do the will of my Father who has sent me. It is my food. It is how my whole life is fueled is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is critically important that he says no to his immediate family because as he says no to his immediate family, he's making you, he's saying yes to you to make you a part of his spiritual family. Because he is going to do the will of God for you. Do you see, that was the struggle, wasn't it, in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before he was crucified, when he is sweating great drops of blood, what does he pray to his heavenly Father? Father, if there is any way, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. You see, whole of his mission has been this way. Whole of his mission. Has been this way. From the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, all the way to the very end, it's about doing the will of God for you. Now, here is where, when we begin to understand the richness of that gospel, we can conclude here with this fourth point our doing of the will of God. God has called us. To do the will of God. Our doing of the will of God draws us together as the family of God around Jesus Christ. That's what it does. Our doing of the will of God draws us together as the family of God around the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what actually brings you into this room right now? Jesus Christ brings you into this room. He's the one who brings us here. He's the one who's related us. He is the one who has made us uh, brothers and sisters and fathers and, and mothers in, in Christ. 
And only as we are drawn together around doing the will of God in Christ do we find our fellowship strengthened, more deeply unified, sweeter than it's ever been before. Do you know what weakens the church? What weakens the church is when we seek to build relationships the way the world does within the church. We build affinity groups. We create programs for entertainment to gather folks. It's no different than anything that the world does. No wonder we have weak community when the ways in which we're gelling one another is around the techniques and mechanisms of the world. What actually unifies the body of Christ is Christ himself. And so if we are going to be strengthened together, if we're going to enjoy the sweetness of fellowship together, if the unity of the body of Christ is going to be preserved, we've got to do the will of God together gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's got to be. And that's really where the joy of the Christian life really comes in, doesn't it? You know those moments, right? Those few (laughs) moments, those rare moments when you meet someone. You've never met them before. You meet them and they know Christ. They love Christ. And and you've known them for 10 minutes and it's like you've known them for 100 years. Your souls and hearts are knit together in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be from different countries. You may be from different backgrounds. You may be from vastly different socioeconomic circumstances and situations. You may have almost no shared physical, earthly commonalities. But the lifeblood of your relationship being the Lord Jesus Christ becomes the centerpiece. And there is a strength in that community and that unity and a sweetness that's abiding that gives you a glimpse into what relationships have always meant to be about, making Christ the very center of our lives together. And I think as this Sunday, as we remember those who are um, joining our fellowship, as we celebrate them, uh, how important it is for us to remember that it is Christ that we share together. It is, it is Christ that's calling us together. It's His will that unifies us together. What if the community that we shared was the community of Christ? The common unity that we find in Christ. And not all of the other many things. How might that be a distinctive aroma in a watching world that's looking for relationships that are deep, meaningful, that matter, and that endure all the way into eternity? By God's grace, let's be those people resting in the finished work of Christ, doing His will together for His glory. Father in heaven, we would ask for that grace right now to fall from heaven upon us. That the sweetness and unity and strength of this local congregation of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church would be known because we have embraced Christ together. It wouldn't be known merely by earthly metrics And our community wouldn't be tried to be cobbled together or held together uh, simply uh, because of a few techniques or tricks or programs. But there would be such a unity around who Christ is and a longing as disciples in fellowship to do His will that we would find ourselves always with one another laboring beside one another, encouraging and strengthening one another, laughing and weeping together in Christ. And we would find that the family that we gather with each week on the Lord's Day is no 
less sweet, in fact, is more sweet and rich than any of the immediate family that we might gather with on that Thursday in late November. Uh, Lord, we would recognize that it is the family of God that lasts into eternity. Lord, let that dawn on us now, and let's live according to it. In Christ's name, amen.